Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Network. Right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. A lot to get into today. I'll be talking about some Star Wars news that's coming out while recapping the third episode of the Mandalorian documentary. I'll also be talking about MGM and Netflix picking up some major projects over the weekend and on Friday. Plus, the five-year anniversary of Mad Max Fury Road and some news regarding its spinoff from George Miller and more. But the first thing that I want to get into, as I have done over the last few weeks, is the final episodes of The Last Dance. and 10 which showcased the final few years of the Bulls dynasty specifically 1997 and 1998 in regards to the two finals matchups between the Utah Jazz and the 98 Eastern Conference matchup between the Indiana Pacers which went seven games with Reggie Miller, Jalen Rose, Mark Jackson. It was a it was an incredible series that really was the only one that took the Bulls to seven games from 91 from their first championship all the way to the the 98 finals in which basically every single one ended in six games, five games, but this one went seven games and it, and it was a major factor and they go into talking about how they didn't know if it was going to be the last time they took game seven as an, an all or nothing, which it usually is when it comes to basketball or baseball, hockey, game sevens come down to elimination or you move on. And so they talked about those matchups. They also talked about the flu game, which from Jordan's perspective, from what Michael Jordan and the people in the documentary were saying, it was more of a food poisoning game instead of the flu game in which it was the night before game five of the East of the NBA finals in 97. And basically what had happened was according to all reports, Michael Jordan wasn't feeling well and he still played the game. And this, as it, as the documentary has done from the first episode, really goes into detail with a lot of these series. And with this one, they talked about how actually before that night, he apparently with his crew, they he was hungry and he wanted to order a pizza. Or really, it was they were looking for food and the hotel didn't have any food. They looked for miles and miles and miles for something. And the only thing that they found was a pizza place. And so they decided to order him a pizza. And apparently he ate every single slice of that pizza. Usually a pie is eight slices, so he ate ate all slices of that pie. And then that night, early in the morning, 2, 3 o'clock, MJ was saying, he was throwing up, curling up in a ball, wasn't feeling well. And they talk about how he went on to still play, even though he Phil Jackson came over, everyone was trying to say if he was still going to play, and he decided to, and... He didn't know if he was going to act as a decoy or just kind of support the the team as others contributed to win that game. And in the end, he wound up shooting it was between 30 to 40 points, and they won that game, which led to a game six or a game five, which went on into Chicago. And then they went on to game six in Chicago, and they won the finals in that game. And so I think – Hearing things like that, you get a different perspective of this is from their own 
their own world or from their words of what they see as what happened and they they were saying about the pizza how his trainer which he has really been a highlight for the entire sh- the entire show really where from the last few episodes he talks to the, the, the my MJ's trainer about transitioning from baseball to basketball from baseball to basketball again and then how he really kind of just formulated into another fantastic run in building his body and so he was the one who kind of saw the pizza and didn't think it was it was suspicious, but he still ate the pizza, and there were five guys that delivered the pizza. It was a whole interesting, intriguing story that happened with that game, but to hear that it was another F word, not the flu, but food poisoning from NJ, that's the kind of stuff you love hearing about in a, in a documentary, and specifically what we've been hearing from this one. And also another really cool thing is the last few amount of episodes really focused on MJ and how really going in-depth about his brand into his mentality of playing with his teammates and what made him tick, how he played the mindset, the mentality. But the first few episodes really kind of introducing MJ and then introducing the supporting characters around him, Pippen, Rodman, and Phil Jackson, who's a head coach. But on episode nine, we really got an introduction into Steve Kerr, who really... At, the, at that time, I guess I wasn't around to really watch those teams play. Or from 90, for the 97-98 team, I was an infant. So I, I didn't really know, obviously, what was happening for that championship run. But I always heard Steve Kerr's name mentioned with it. But really, I guess when you when pe- people who were watching it, Steve Kerr wasn't obviously as big as MJ, Pippen, or Phil Jackson, or any of those guys. But... Nowadays, he's really up there, and the reason for that is because he's kind of been going on his own dynasty run with the Golden State Warriors, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green. They've won four championships in the last five to six years or so, and so Steve Kerr's really kind of ballooned to this big personality that was a part of that Bulls dynasty, specifically that that second three-peat that occurred. And so Jason Ayer, who has done an incredible job with this documentary, and I'll get into him a little bit more later on, he really kind of honed in on Steve Kerr this episode, talked about his background, his family, the tragedy that occurred around his father, which I didn't know about whatsoever. So it was great to kind of get that background information on Steve Kerr. And as Air and the entire crew have done throughout this entire show, they did a great job in tying that backstory with the events that were going on in that specific episode and how Steve Kerr really was a a big, big, big proponent in that Utah series and a clutch player in that 97-98 Eastern Conference and in that Utah series as well when they won their sixth championship. So they just did a great job in tying everything back together as they have always done throughout this entire docuseries, and I thought that was incredible. And then the ending, which really kind of gives you really some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff that you might not have known about and things that really kind of ring in with a lot of analysts that are kind of going and talking and diving into this documentary or this docuseries rather, specifically when you go on ESPN or FS1 and they kind of start bringing up the debates of what would have happened with the seventh championship. What what about LeBron and MJ? This This really kind of shows you what really happened behind the scenes of really how the dynasty kind of went away and kind of disintegrated from that season on and how everyone was traded or retired or released 
And the ending really kind of shows from Jerry Reinsdorf's perspective, who's the owner of the Bulls and the Chicago White Sox, how he asked Phil Jackson to come back for another season. And then Phil Jackson surprisingly said that he didn't want to come back for another season. And it seemed like Reinsdorf was going to go over Jerry Krause, who was the famed villain of this whole thing, where even though he's a genius for for building the whole thing, other than MJ, who was drafted before his time as general manager, he brought in Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Horace Grant. He brought in all the guys that were vital to helping Jordan and Pippen into becoming two-time three-peats in a row and winning six championships. But he was always also perceived as that villain in the sense that he wanted to break this team up. But it seemed like Jerry Reinsdorf would have gone over over Krause's head for this, but it seemed like Phil Jackson just had enough, and I can't blame him for, even though you might want to go for a seventh championship, for what he had to deal with in from 91 and 93, and then everything with Jordan retiring, and then having to deal with characters like Dennis Rodman in from 95 to 98. And so I thought that was really, really interesting into seeing how... Phil Jackson kind of dealt with everything and that he just didn't want to go on and then MJ kind of ends the docuseries in detailing that they thought they could have gone on for a a seventh title and that they could have won in the 98-99 season which was a shortened season because of an NBA lockout so there was just there's all these variables that come into place and I think what this docuseries did incredibly well was it really kind of bolstered who the, the myth of Michael Jordan, but also that myth of the Bulls dynasty and how you when you always think of dynasties, you always think of championship winners, nothing can really go wrong or there's not a lot of drama that goes on with a lot of dynasty teams and and that there's always a successful winning and as long as people are winning, there's no problems. Well with with the with the Bulls and with Michael Jordan, even with winning, there were always storylines that were percolating within newspapers and 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 media companies and media studios that it there was so much drama from 91 when they faced the Lakers even before then to 97 98 with Rodman leaving to go to Vegas for a few days and not coming back when he was supposed to come back there were all these storylines that were happening that any team that was trying to win nowadays really probably wouldn't do as well and I think it does a gr- it does a really good job of showcasing that era the 90s and even some of the late 80s era of basketball and how different it is to this day and age that we have the NBA and I thought these last two episodes were really good I thought definitely they it was they they weren't really stretched out per se but they definitely could see that they didn't have anything else to really show for it in the sense that we're when it came to that 10th episode, it's all just focused on that 90s, that that finals matchup between the Utah Jazz. And I love how they brought John Stockton, but unless, I, I asked, I didn't know if Carl Malone passed away or if he was dead or not, but I, I heard that he wasn't. And I was curious of how they were able to get Isaiah Thomas, Patrick Ewing. They were able to get Gary Payton. They were able to get all these guys that Jordan went up against, but they weren't able to get Carl Malone. So I found that interesting, but... I wish they would have given more of a, not a play-by-play, but something along the lines of just something else I think was needed in that last episode or so. But I thought the ending of it really hit strong and kind of brought that docuseries to a great close. And I still think the the middle of this docuseries is the best of, of the entire thing. Again, the first four episodes really did a great job establishing the characters, moving the story along 
but then five through eight really kind of give you a deep dive into Michael Jordan, into this Bulls dynasty and the troubles that came along with it. And people might say it's because of it's focused too much on Michael Jordan and it's focused it's it it, it definitely was focused on Michael Jordan a lot and it definitely could have focused on the Bulls a lot more. I definitely wished we got more of Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, but you always have that central character and that central character is Michael Jordan in the sense and he was the one and they say at the end of the doc that you needed that that light that lightning rod Michael Jordan was that lightning rod and then the fire that came from that spark became Scottie Pippen Dennis Rodman and all these other people that helped fill in those cracks to help MJ along with this Chicago Bulls team and so I definitely can understand how if you're somebody who's a fan of these teams that the Knicks or that the Bulls went up against then they didn't really kind of go in depth about them it, it was really just about that Bulls dynasty and how you focus on that team specifically and those teams that really kind of brought the NBA from where it was to people knew the league, but into an international superstar level that is rivaled as other than the, if you didn't have the NFL, the NBA would be the biggest league in, in the, at least in the United States at this given point in time and in the world really. But the NFL has that on, on lock and key, but the NBA is a lot bigger today and that is in large part due because of what MJ was able to do with the Bulls in the 90s and you there's so many different cast of characters from that 90s and Malone, Stockton, Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, Gary Payton, a, a, a later a later in his career Magic Johnson and Larry Bird who went from player to coach and face Michael. Now that that was a cool kind of cap cap and and end of cap really from the first two episodes of MJ going against Larry Bird and the 85-86 Celtics to facing off against the Larry Bird coached Indiana Pacers in the late 90s. I thought that was really, really cool to see and witness. And overall, I thought this was just great storytelling. And that's what you want from a documentary. Documentary is another form of movie of movie going or, or storytelling, really. And it's not it's a documentary, but it's a docu-series because it was broken up and it was made for television. It was broken up into 10 parts for television audiences to see. It wasn't made for a movie-going experience, but it's still another form of, of storytelling. And you have your main character, you have your settings, you have your plot, you have your side characters, you go back into the past. And I thought what Jason Eyre did and and his crew of really hunkering down, especially during this pandemic and pushing this this release date for this project up from when it was, it was supposed to come out during the finals next month, to last month in April and delivering these final few episodes that were really good and great to kind of giving us something to really look forward to these last few Sundays and delivering great storytelling and being able to, again, just tie everything from that one season, that last dance, to events that were relevant in that time period to back in the day from when Jordan was drafted to his early days to winning his first his championship to winning that three-peat to his retirement. I love how they were able to do in episode seven and eight last weekend in which that first playoff series against the Nets, Nets people were saying that MJ didn't look right. He looked as tired as he did when he won his first three-peat. Then they go back to that and they talk about how he retired and then he came back. That was all amazing storytelling that Jason Aaron and his crew was able to pull back from. And he talked about on Scott Van Pelt how he had a board showing note cards and how every single episode had a moment. Like, to me, the best moment of the entire show is episode seven in which Jordan gets emotional talking about his mentality. 
when they had that moment, Air said, the director, that they that was a moment that they had locked in place for episode seven and they built around that. They had the Steve Kerr moment in which for episode nine, then they worked their way around that. With Robin and the bad boys and, and the Vegas era, they knew to work that into there. There were so many different moments that Jason Air said that they had that they started filling out no cards and were able to fill the cracks in like you would with cement and really kind of molded what we got with The Last Dance. So, again, congratulations. My, I tip my hat off to him, to his crew, and what he was able to do with this incredible show, this incredible docuseries, that I wouldn't be surprised if it got some awards consideration. I definitely think ESPN, Netflix, which was a co-financier, co-producer in this project, that they should definitely consider themselves for a documentary or some kind of category for the Emmys. And I think this is going to be a docuseries that lives on for the next few years. And this this was the biggest, dauntest project that ESPN has taken on to date. Bigger than the O.J. Simpson Made in America one, which was a phenomenal docuseries. And I put this one right up there with it just because of the way that it talked about great, especially great sports documentaries. I love how they talk about sports and they talk about the teams and you go in depth about them. But... They also go outside the world of sports, and you show the cultural impact, the, the the impact they had on society, on on all these different aspects that you wouldn't think were were actual actually possible. The Last Dance hits on it on every, almost every episode, and the same thing happened with OJ Made in America. So I, I put this docu series right up there with the great ones that ESPN has put up there. And this, I think this will give people a bigger perspective on MJ, on the Bulls. And this is a history lesson for the generations that my generation included that didn't really know MJ or they knew of him. They knew of the legend and they, they've seen highlights, but to actually see the process, the games, what he went through, the teams that he put that were put together with him and what they went through as well. I think it just really kind of shows you what basketball was like back in the day, but also what some of the great teams were like, and specifically that Bulls dynasty of really how they are, really one of the greatest teams in American sports of all time, one of the greatest dynasties of all time, and you can definitely see why after watching The Last Dance. So I tip my hat off to Jason Ayer and the crew over at ESPN, Netflix, for putting this incredible docuseries together for all of us to watch these past five weeks. And there's some really cool 30 for 30s coming out on ESPN that I think are going to be really good, not to the level of of what the last dance was, but I think in order, if people are looking for things to keep themselves occupied on Sunday nights now, definitely something to check out. There's one on Lance Armstrong that's a two-parter that's starting on Sunday. There's one that premiered at Sundance and it was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest called Be Water, which talks about Bruce Lee and the incredible career that he had. And then the last one is, I forget the name of it, but it's about Sammy Sosa and the home run challenge and the home run, the home run, uh, companionship and the, the home run duel that was happening between some players and how they were juiced up on steroids. And so I think those are definitely some interesting 30 for 30s if you're a sports fan like I am and are still interested in finding some things to watch and look out for with everything that's still going on with the world right now. And But The Last Dance definitely elevated it and definitely gave us something to look forward to each and every night for the last five weeks. What did you guys think of these last two episodes of The Last Dance? And what did you guys think about the la- the overall docuseries, The Last Dance? I'm going to make a poll during the timing of this recording. I'm going to make a poll after I upload the podcast. And I will have a poll about 
the docuseries, The Last Dance, what did you think about it? Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Did it live up to your expectations? Did it not? I'll put up a, do- a poll and I'll reveal the results of that poll on the podcast tomorrow. Let me know in that poll also in the comment section what you guys thought about The Last Dance. I would love to know your thoughts about it. Moving on to another recap that happened on Friday and what is becoming an annual Friday watch now is the Disney Gallery, the Mandalorian docuseries on Disney+. Plus. And this was one that has been up and down early on so far, just now three episodes in. First episode I really enjoyed. They talked about the directors. The second episode was okay. It definitely was more about people on the crew and cast, love their love for Star Wars and why they wanted to be a part of Star Wars. But it didn't really have any kind of meat and substance to it other than one or two moments in which Favreau was talking to the Lucasfilm crew about the and especially industrial light and magic about the the, the making of the, the the prequels and the original trilogy but and then of course the ending the last eight minutes really made that episode of Dave Filoni talking about the hero's journey and specifically Anakin's journey and how the lightsaber duel at the very end of the Phantom Menace has more weight to it now especially after hearing what he said then it initially did and I think a lot of people who watched this docuseries will carry that with them whenever they watch that duel between Qui-Gon Jinn, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace. But other than other than those two things, the second episode wasn't that good. And so I came into this just hoping for some behind-the-scenes information on The Mandalorian. What, what went into making this? And the, this episode, which is titled The Cast, and it talks about Pedro Pascal, Gina Carano, and and Carl Weathers, and how they came about, what they did on the production set, and how Favreau and Filoni came into contact with, with these actors and actresses, and why they thought they were the best for the role, and this was definitely by far the best episode, because it gave us the most information, and really just kind of running down some of the, the plot points that they really went into, they, they talked about the cast coming together, and especially talking with Carl Weathers, he was he's more the he, he's the he's the he's the experienced guy on set. And not to say that Gina Carano is obviously the rookie. She hasn't had a lot of acting experience. Pedro Pascal would be in that middle class. He's great in everything he does, but Carl Weathers has been in the game a lot longer a lot longer from obviously playing Apollo Creed in the Rocky franchise and being in Predator. He's been in a bunch of things that he knows what he's talking about and so when, whenever they run into really the acting method, the method of acting with this show, the big thing they talked about was the Mando himself, and specifically the the mask, and how you can't really see the eyes. And with acting, it's all about the eyes and the, and the emotional reaction they give within those. And it's always you can't really see the, the the eyes or the expression they're giving on their faces. And so the cast and also the crew talked about really making it more of physical emotions and how. Every single time the Mando maybe was having second thoughts or having doubts about something, he would look in in one direction. Or if he would say with episode three of Baby Yoda and, and the little ball, Mando puts his hand on there and the ball's not there. And that displays some kind of emotion that you don't get from the face. So Carl Weathers was talking about this and how you work through more physical emotions than you would with the mental emotions, which you get with the eyes and the face. It's more physicality. So I thought that was really interesting. And then they go and talk about Pedro Pascal, who I think that was a big question everyone had was, other than that scene where we see him him get unmasked in episode eight of The Mandalorian, you don't see his face 
throughout the entire rest of the of at least season one. We don't know about season two or even season three. And was Pedro really actually doing a lot of the stunts? Was he in the costume all that much? And so people have questions about that. And from the, at least the behind-the-scenes video that's put on there, it didn't seem like he was doing a whole lot of the actual action that was going on. They There were two stunt doubles that were on there. One was more of the, the gunslinger. They even say it, he the, 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 the first person was a gunslinger, somebody who was really good with working with guns and the action involved with gun shooting. And the other one was more of the martial arts, jujitsu, kind of more physical aspect of the combat of the Mandalorian and really what Pedro did was he would be on set for that to see I guess the 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 reactions and what was actually going on and then he would kind of be put into this theater area and and, and it wasn't like a typical recording booth that you see behind the scenes it was in a theater and they had they had a recording module with a screen next to it and basically Favreau was there Filoni and a few of the crew members and they were kind of giving him directions on what to do and how to say this and how to do that and I thought that was really really cool and there was a shot of Pedro Pascal holding a pillow and that pillow basically acted as the the child as as baby Yoda so I thought that was a really cool inference of Pedro Pascal might not have been involved with a lot of the actual physical movements and actually being on set but he had to do a lot of the the voice acting and kind of portray that while not being on set. So I thought that was really, really cool. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen with these next few seasons, if Pedro will have a lot more involved in the actual shooting. But just to see what they did with this first season, I thought was really cool. And then Filoni and John Favreau get into Gina Carano. And I thought this was really, really cool when talking about them, in which apparently from what that the, the round table that Favreau had with the actors and Filoni and himself apparently Gina Carano was always on their list to play Cara Dune and even in the the concept art when when Pedro Pascal talks about how when he was brought in to be pitched the Mandalorian and, and they showed him a concept art of Cara Dune it was Gina Carano that was actually drawn out it wasn't just somebody that you could maybe put in there and they had a, a list they wanted Gina Carano to do this and how Favreau said that he watched her in Haywire from Steve Soderbergh and her work in Deadpool, and that really kind of drew him to casting Gina Carano because of that that physicality nature that she has, obviously, because she was an MMA fighter before becoming an actress. And Favreau talks about Gina Carano, and really a lot of the directors do as well, in which Gina Carano reminds a lot of them of those old action stars in which they would just kind of bring the physicality Every single day, they would their hands would be and knuckles would be bruised and broken and bloodied, and that you would see that with Harrison Ford and a lot of the the fifties and sixties action stars of the day, and that they reminded that she reminded them of that in a way that I thought was really cool and especially for somebody who before the first season of Mandalorian, I was one of them and I know a lot of people were questioning, can Gina Carano pull this off? Can her acting ability be on par with their physical ability? And Deadpool kind of showed that a little bit, and, and Haywire was more of a physical role as well, but she really brought the emotion to Cara Dune, and even Gina Carano says that she has never been more vested as an actor than she has been with Cara Dune's character, and she talks about how she would work with Carl Weathers, and Carl Weathers would kind of be her mentor in a way of showing, this is how you do one thing, or this is how you do another, and she was messing up, I think it was in, in the seventh and eighth episode shoots that they were working on that she would be messing up this one part that she couldn't get down quite right, and she was nervous about it. 
and she would go to talk to Carl Weathers, and Carl Weathers would reassure her and comfort her and say, you'll get it on the next one, and Gina Carano built up confidence from then on out. So I think going forward with this character of Cara Dune, I can't wait to see her moving forward and seeing the evolution of Gina Carano as an actress now. It seems like she's really invested in this. She really is giving her her all and so I'm excited to see what she does in the next season, the season after, if she makes it to that in terms of her character. Hopefully she doesn't die in the next season, but if she makes it to season three, we see that evolution and other directors and studios will be looking at her for, for additional projects. So I thought I definitely think this was the best episode by far. Again, there's four more or five more to go in this docuseries right now. We still have to get into the Baby Yodamtronics, and also that those LED screens that they've been showing for these last three episodes. How do they create that? How is that for the actors? So this is definitely a step in the right direction for this docuseries. And like The Last Dance, that really kind of got into the meat and the bones of that Bulls dynasty. It really kind of peeled the layers back on the, the players and the coaches and the culture. And I'm not saying The Mandalorian is going to do that specifically, but you want to peel back the layers of this production that was fascinating and really was a cultural phenomenon. And with Star Wars, there's there's CGI, but there's now practical effects and all this this revolutionary technology that Favreau is really connected into that he utilized with this production that you really want to know about. So I hope they they don't go, you know, they don't have to go into the whole phenomenon of it, which they're not probably going to, but to, into the production of this, I'm really excited to see what they do because this was definitely a step in the right direction. What did you guys think about the Mandalorian documentary, the third episode, the cast? I want to know your thoughts about it. Let me know down in the post below in the comment section. Now, moving on from recaps and going on now to some other movie news that is happening around Hollywood. The first one I want to get into is a delay in release once again for another film that didn't really move at first, but has indefinitely removed their date of July 10th, and that is the fifth film in the Purge franchise, The Forever Purge. The first four films grossed more than $466 million at the global box office for a very for a very low budget, so these are very, very, very successful films. The budgets for these are around 30 to $35 million or so, and overall for four films, they have almost 100 or so each is very, very, very good. So I think for the Forever Purge, they'll be okay wherever they move as long as they have the title name Purge in there. But this is, again, no surprise whatsoever that this film moved. Even though Unhinged is coming out on July 1st with Russell Crowe, it seems like everyone else is clearing the decks for Tenet, which I'll talk about a little later on. But for the Forever Purge, this makes a ton of sense. No surprise. I was wondering when they were going to move it. It'll be interesting to see if Universal and Blumhouse moved this to VOD, which I don't think they will because of the money that comes with it, even though it is on a lower budget scale. you still, I think for this, they know that there's more box office appeal to it than there would be if they put it on VOD. So I wouldn't be surprised if they schedule for next year because these Purge movies have come out in the beginning of July. I know the last one, or the, the third or fourth one, or no, the third one came out around the July 4th weekend. And the same one with the, the fourth Purge movie came around July and August so they want to keep that summer date, so I wouldn't be surprised if they moved it to sometime next year in July, if there is any room because of the backlog that we're getting with everything that ha that is happening with the coronavirus and its effect on the movie calendar right now. What did you guys think about this news for the Forever Purge delay? Let me know what you think in the comments below on the social media post 
whether it be on Twitter or Facebook. Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Now moving on to some details regarding Spike Lee's brand new film, or as it's always called with the Spike Lee film, a brand new Spike Lee joint, The Five Bloods, has released a brand, their first trailer, not even a brand new trailer, but their first trailer for this Netflix exclusive. And before even the trailer, there was a Vanity Fair article that came out that showcased the first photos of the film and the first details, and they kind of got into the plot and how it's it, it's really about a band of soldiers that go back to the Vietnam War and Viet Cong, and they go back to grab their fallen captain from when they were in the war, but also a pile of gold that they left behind, and it's really kind of this really cool apocalypse now-like journey that they go upon, and I really, it seems like Spike Lee, and he says in the article how he's really drawn two films like Apocalypse Now, but it'll have the 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 Spike Lee flavor that is accustomed, where it'll talk about race and culture and really dying for a country that doesn't respect you at that given point in time, For especially for African Americans. The Vietnam War was around the civil rights movement, and how was that, how did that affect African American soldiers that fought over in Vietnam when people in the states weren't treating the African Americans the right way? Why would they want to fight for a country that isn't treating them with respect the way that they would treat Caucasians really the right way during that time period? So it's going to have all those spikely social commentary that you would expect from his films. And seeing the, the, the trailer for this, it just gets me even more excited for this movie because Spike Lee is doing his thing. And, and the thing with Netflix is they will give you free reign for whatever you want to do. We saw it last year with The Irishman. We've seen it with Marriage Story. Netflix kind of gives you the, not, well, really a blank check. They did it with Irishman. They'll give you a blank check for the creative vision that you want to make. And Spike Lee seems to be doing that with The Five Bloods. And I love how they kind of, showcase the different time periods that go on in when you go to the flashbacks during the vietnam war you get that aspect ratio change it looks like it's filmed on super eight millimeter cameras it, it looks so so cool like it was filmed in the 60s with that vibrant hue that is developed with the colors and then you kind of go back to that that normal aspect ratio that you get nowadays where you have more of a cinematic quality feel to it in the present day so i'm really loving what spike lee's doing with this the you got the humor in there, but you got emotion and all these different characters have different viewpoints and different cultural standpoints. So I really love that about this film. And Spike Lee really did it for me with the Black Klansman. Black Klansman is one of my favorite films that came out in 2018. And also given the fact that really what he was able to do with Do the Right Thing, of course, and, and a few other films, but what he was specifically able to do with Adam Driver and John David Washington was was really really good and incredible and engaging and for a story that was told for something back in the 70s it really harkened to today's day and age that we're living as a, as a culture and as a society in terms of race so I'm really excited to see what he does with Netflix I'm excited for this film now it's coming out on June 12th in between the five bloods King of Staten Island and Artemis Fowl on Disney Plus and on VOD for King of Staten Island June 12th is going to be stacked to a T between, again, you have a kid's film, you have a adult comedy, and you have an adult drama to come out on June 12th. So even though the summer movie season for May and June has kind of been a bare moon right now, and there's nothing left, it's desolate wasteland right now, June 12th at least gives you a bright spot in that first half of the summer movie season, specifically 
on June 12th. Moving on now to some projects that have found directors and stars that I want to get into. And the first thing is Danny Boyle's next project that he will be working on. And according to Variety, it, he is going to be directing a brand new film called Misujai. And it's going to star Michael B. Jordan. And it will reunite Danny Boyle with the Slumdog Millionaire screenwriter Simon Bufoy, who he won an Academy Award with. And according to Variety sources, they say that they think that this has the potential to be a franchise starter with this film with Michael B. Jordan, who has worked with Warner Brothers for a long, long time. And they want to try to give him something, a franchise starter, whether it's this or Without Remorse from Tom Clancy that he's working on, which is set for sometime this year in October. So I think Danny Boyer with Michael B. Jordan is a really good matchup. And originally it was supposed to be Tom Cruise that was set to star on this. And it seems like every single time there's a new casting announcement. The person that was supposed to play this role previously, Tom Cruise is always associated in one way or another. And I think Tom Cruise and Danny Boyle would have been a cool fit. But Michael B. Jordan and Danny Boyle is an, is an in, intriguing fit in, in the fact that Michael B. Jordan is really an A-list star nowadays. But he doesn't, like they said, they, he doesn't have that franchise starter. He's Creed is really the only thing you can maybe say that, he, that has been a franchise starter for him. Even though people will say, well, he was in Black Panther... Unless he comes back in Black Panther, if you know what happens to his character at the very end, then it's highly unlikely that he'll be back. And if anything, he's not the main star. Chadwick Boseman is the main the main star. He's T'Challa. He's Black Panther. Michael B. Jordan is a side character in that movie. He Fruitvale Station, Fantastic Four didn't launch the way that it was supposed to launch. Creed has been the only thing that has been as close to a franchise as he has had with two films in that spinoff area from the Rocky franchise. And so without remorse, and this film could be something where he can really, even though he, to me, he is an A-list star, fran franchises help bolster star stars in which you're a super, superstar. And Michael B. Jordan is killing it wherever he goes. He's been doing incredible one-off films, but you need that franchise in order to really kind of sustain yourself. And I think this is the perfect thing for him to get, sink his teeth into. And you have an Academy Award-winning director right beside you to help you with that. I think Michael B. Jordan will be fine, and I think this is a really interesting turn for Danny Boyle, who was supposed to do No Time to Die before he left because of creative differences. So I guess Warner Brothers is on the same page with Danny Boyle with this, and they're excited to see what they do with this film when it comes out. It has no release date yet, but that is to be determined. And when it does happen, I'll let you guys know on this podcast. Moving on now to... Another interesting project that has been in the works for a while, and there's seems like there's a new director coming in every other year or so, and it seems like right now they have found their new director, and that is Luca Guridino, who was the director for Call Me By Your Name, who got an Academy Award nomination for that, and multiple Academy Award nominations, and a win for screenplay. He will be directing this movie with the Coen brothers, surprisingly, set to write the latest draft of the film and will follow in the legacy of the two adaptations that came beforehand with the more famous one being from 1983 with Al Pacino and, and directed by De Palma. This is, I think, an interesting turn for Scarface because you look at the people that came beforehand. Antoine Fuqua and David Ayer were set to direct this years ago. I remember when Antoine Fuqua was announced for this and it seemed like he could really kind of bring out another kind of grittier version of Scarface as Antoine Fugo kind of does a, a gritty kind of feel to any kind of crime film that he does. 
David Ayer does gritty as well. And even though you might know him for Bright or you might know him from Suicide Squad, his earlier films like End of Watch and what he did with Fury as well were more grounded and gritty and realistic than those the the recent films that he has done. So I think David Ayer would have been a good match as well. But he did Suicide Squad, and he's been doing other projects ever since. So these two have kind of left the situation. Luca has he's a director that kind of does more human stories, more serenity stories, and, and more peaceful films. And you look at something like Call Me By Your Name, it is not in the same field as a Scarface. So I'm really intrigued to see what he brings to this. It'll, if, if it'll be, I don't want to say a more tame version, but a more character depth version of this, this story that is really famously known again for that Al Pacino film, Say Hello to My Little Friend. The the, the 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 machine gun the the cocaine and 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 Tony's house and the way that Al Pacino plays him it I wonder how that's gonna fit and I, I it just Antoine Fuqua and David Ayer make a lot more sense to me than than this director does but he could surprise me for all I know and do a really good job with this so hopefully they stick to this guy and they are actually formulating a plan to make a new Scarface movie down the line. And then moving away from directing announcements to more of a of a casting announcement, after coming off the heels of the announcement that Unhinged is going to start coming out in theaters on July 1st, a few weeks before Tenet, which is the film that everyone has been clearing out for on July 17th, Unhinged stars Russell Crowe, and that's going to be the next movie that he's in, but the project following seems to have lined up a new film for him, and that is going to be a thriller from Paramount called American Sun. It is based off of the critically acclaimed French film, A Prophet, and Andrew Anabulo is set to direct the film, and it's centered around a man who, after falling under the control of a rootless mobster, who will be Russell Crowe's character, in prison, builds a multi-radical crime syndicate, takes down his mentor, and earns a place for his crew alongside the Italian and Russian mafias. And Paramount right now is looking to find an unknown, somebody that they can sit down in auditions and say, that's the person that we want to cast for this role that not a lot of people know about for the lead right alongside Russell Crowe. And between the sound of this and from Unhinged, it seems like Russell Crowe is going on a little bit of a villain bender at the current moment in time. He's played really the good guys in a lot of films, or really the complex characters, but he's once or twice sometimes played a really good villain, but... I've never really seen that before with him, and I think between Unhinged, which kind of just shows Russell Crowe going off the deep end, and this, it'll be really interesting to see him kind of take on a more sinister role that I really kind of love to see him do. He's such a great director, not a great director, but a great actor that I haven't really seen around. If, if you look at what he did with The Loudest Voice as well, I mean, that just gives you an indication of what he's going to do. He was breathtaking in The Loudest Voice playing Roger Dale's where. I would not want to be in the same room as Russell Russell Crowe in, in doing those scenes. Then, But seeing him, he was magnetic. He glued you to a, a, a show that was really good. It was made great because of that performance. So seeing Russell Crowe kind of take on the bad guys now in a way, I think is really interesting and, and a different career move for him. So I'm excited to see what he does with this film. I'm excited to hear more casting announcements, more directing, or not even directing, but hopefully soon once everything is able to go back into production then people will be able to kind of see what this movie is about. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited for people. I hope you guys are excited about that as well to see Russell Crowe's next projects 
down the pipeline. Moving on now to some news coming out from Disney Plus, which I think is really, really, really interesting moving forth where you had last week the news of Hamilton being a part of Disney Plus going forward after being taken off of theaters. Well, now it seems like Disney Plus is picking up a lot of projects, and the first thing that they're picking up is a film from Warner Brothers that was supposed to play in Warner Brothers called Clouds, and it was supposed to have a theatrical release, but because of everything again with COVID-19, the backlog in 2020, 2021, some films are going to have to make a sacrifice, and it seems like Warner Brothers is able to make the sacrifice with this, and kind of like what Netflix is doing right now with The Lovebirds and they're doing it with the the movie, the Bad Trip movie that's coming out that was announced last week. It seems like Disney Plus is making those same moves, saying, well, you're doing that Netflix, well, we're going to be doing it as well. And picking this up, it sounds really, it sounds like right in line with what Disney would want on their streaming service. It stars Finn Argus, former Disney Channel star Sabrina Carpenter, and the star from Annabelle Comes Home, Madison Isman. And it's going to be directed by Jason Baldoni, who is the director who did Five Feet Apart from CBS Films, who with one of the Sprouse brothers from Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. And it's based on a true story about the life of Zach Zobich. He is a high school kid who was diagnosed with a rare bone, can- uh, rare bone cancer. And he faced this disease by turning to music and writing a song called Clouds, which apparently went viral on YouTube and reached number one on iTunes. And until his time- untimely death in 2013, at the age of 18. So this definitely sounds like a tearjerker coming of age story, something that is right in line with what Disney Plus would want on their streaming service. Now, I guess there's nothing really crazy about it or in terms of adult content because Disney Plus has really been kind of going for the where for the family, for for the kids, and a lot of the more adult-centered films and projects that they have are going to Hulu. So it seems like this is at least friendly enough for families to watch that. And I guess they want to get the teenager aspect range into this as well, that if you want to go on Disney+, Plus, this is something you can watch and, and be entertained by. And it seems like it's going to have, be that tearjerker, that emotional film that you would go out and, and witness and watch. But this is a great move by Disney+, Plus in terms of picking up projects. And their first project that they're picking up from a studio to a digital. And this isn't something that is an original from them. This isn't in-house. This is an extension that they're picking up from another studio. And then the second thing that is being developed from Disney Plus is a Percy Jackson show, and it was announced by the author of that famous series of books, Rick Rudin. He said on Twitter, We can't say much more at this stage, but we are very excited about the idea of a live-action series of the highest quality following the storyline of the original Percy Jackson five-book series, starting with The Lightning Thief in Season 1. Rest assured that Becky and I will be involved in every in, in person in every aspect of the show. And this was a surprise announcement that came out Friday. And this comes off the heels of two films that 20, 20th Century Fox at the name of the time made, which they both grossed over $425 million, but they didn't have great critical reception. And it seems like Disney wants to bring this back and do it the right way, which I'm very happy about because... I'm a fan of the Percy Jackson books, and I remember when the first film came out in 2012, I was really excited because it seemed like it was going, it has that Harry Potter feel to it, where instead of it being a school, it's a summer camp, and it's for Greek demigods. It's basically Harry Potter, but for demigods, basically. 
and I love and I loved the characters. I loved the story, it had an overarching story while still having standalone features that developed the mythology of the Greeks and the gods and Zeus and Hades, Poseidon. I loved it. And so the first movie that came out, I was a little disappointed because they didn't really do a great job honoring the the faith of the books. And I guess when you're talking about people that read the books before seeing the movies, you can't really judge it. But I think in this instance, for somebody that's read The Hunger Games, for somebody that's read the Harry Potter books, th- this film just kind of went on its own different direction. And I, it, it stayed faithful in the settings and the characters and and really kind of going about the standalone adventure of the book. But it didn't expand on the mythology. And I think doing a show, especially on Disney+, Plus, you'll be able to do exactly that. Explore the mythology. Explore the world of the camp. Explore the world that Percy Jackson finds himself in. And the fact that the first season will focus on the Lightning Thief, and I guess the the next four books will focus be five seasons in total, maybe even seven if they include the the two franchise novels that were a part of the Percy Jackson novel series, I think could be really interesting. And The Sea of Monsters wasn't a really good film as well. It just kind of they kind of were making up for what happened with the first film, and it just it, it just didn't really work for me. And so I'm really excited to see what they do with this show. I hope they they honor the overarching narrative of this franchise while also focusing on the standalones and casting I'm sure they'll cast some unknowns knowing Disney in which they'll want to focus more on the the actual franchise and want to focus on the property instead of the people that are a part of it so this gets me really excited to know that Rick Roden is going to be a part of this franchise kind of like with Suzanne Collins and J.K. Rowling they weren't they were hands-on and they helped steer the way that the books were meant to as they can go into film form. But at the same time, you want to be able to kind of give the production crew a, a sense of let them do their own thing, but you want to make sure they honor the story in the right way. And that's what Suzanne Collins and J.K. Rowling did. And they had really good relationships with their studios and the, and the productions that they were a part of. So I'm hoping that's the same thing with Disney Plus and Rick Roden going forward with this. And I'm excited about a Percy Jackson show being in development for Disney Plus. Speaking of Netflix streaming services, we're going to get moving on to some development news that is coming out for Netflix as they're on the roll right now in acquiring some brand new projects that are on the horizon. And the first one that they're now snabbing from the realm of projects that are on the table is a film from Emily Blunt and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which I talked about last week. And it's called Ball and Chain when it was announced that Emily V. Gordon will be writing the screenplay for this and that Dwayne Johnson and Emily Bunt will be reuniting after shooting The Jungle Cruise, which hasn't come out yet and won't come out until next year due to COVID-19. But the first trailers and the marketing that was in the process for that film, they leaned heavily on the chemistry between Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson. And it seemed like it was good enough, really good, in fact, that people that they wanted to team up together and this is big for Netflix. And before I even get to that, I want to talk about the story real quick, in which the story is based on a couple struggling in their marriage who are equipped with superpowers. And the only way that the powers work is that they have to work together. So already you get that banter between The Rock and Emily Blunt. It's perfect for that setting and for that plot. It's based on the 90s comic of the same, based on the Scott Lobdell comic book, and this will also be Emily Blunt's debut as a producer with her company, Ledbury Productions. 
And this is a statement that came out from The Rock in which he says, one of our main initiatives of Seven Bucks is to continue to find the best platforms to tell stories that entertain and inspire on a global scale. Netflix is the perfect partner to deliver this epic superhero romantic comedy experience alongside us, and we're excited to be back in business with the Netflix team. I'm also excited to not only reunite with my dear friend Emily Blunt in front of the camera, but to also collaborate as producing partners as we bring Emily V. Gordon's script to life. And this was a statement from Scott Stuber in which he said, Dwayne and Emily have a chemistry together that is unmatched in our business right now. They are the perfect duo to bring Emily V. Gordon's electric superhero story to life and take the world of ball and chain to new heights. And again, this is this is big in the, in, in the terms of having Emily Blunt in the rock in this, but also... This is big for Netflix because this is the second time they're getting in bed with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The first time is doing it with Red Notice, which has a stat cast of you have The Rock, you have Ryan Reynolds, and you have Gal Gadot. This time you have The Rock, and you have Emily Blunt, who is also a major superstar as well and is doing incredible stuff as of lately. And for Netflix, it seems like with so many streaming services out right now, Disney Plus, Peacock is coming out soon. Or it's already out if you already have Xfinity X1 and you're uh, you're an MC Universal subscriber. Or HBO Max is coming out in about a week or so. A lot of these production or really streaming services are taking back a lot of the properties that they had over at Netflix. So P The Office is going to be moving to Peacock soon. Friends is taking off Netflix and it'll be moving to HBO Max. So you have all this IP that is that was popular at Netflix moving over now. And so Netflix has had to come up with strategies of how are we going to be able to advertise for people, even though they are the biggest, the bigger streaming brand out there right now, what are we going to possibly do to get people to actually stay with us, to keep being a subscriber on Netflix? And the big thing you do is you sign a lot of these showrunners, producers, Shahanda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, you sign a plethora of people to big lucrative contracts. What you also do is you sign A-list stars that streaming services would dream of getting for an original project to be with Netflix. And that is exactly what they're doing with The Rock. Multiple times they're doing it with The Rock. You also have you get you're getting Emily Blunt right now. You have you've had Mark Wahlberg with Spencer Confidential. You're potentially getting him again with uh, a man from Jersey. You're also going to be getting you you've had Chris Hemsworth. You've had a plethora and plethora of people to to get into bed with, and that is exactly what Netflix is doing. If you can't get the the IP, you go for the major stars, you go for the major directors, you go for the major producers, the names that people associate themselves with, that they love their projects that you would want to go out there and get and be interested in seeing. So I think that is a great, smart, tactical strategy by Netflix and what they're doing. And I'm excited to see what this film is and how it looks theatrically because you're going to get people when Red Notice, whenever it comes out, start saying, well, it, sh it could have debuted in theaters, but why didn't it? And, and the same thing could probably be said for Ball and Chain and a lot of these other films. But a lot of studios don't want it and, and might not want to take a risk with it. That was what happened with Red Notice. The studio didn't want to take a risk with it. And it went to Netflix. Netflix is willing to take the risk. Why not? They're able. They're, they're in debt already. You're making some money off of, of, off of this, but at the same time, you're losing money. So why not shove out some more money? While you're at it, same thing with a lot of these streaming services. But Netflix is just kind of saying, you know what? Let's put it out there. Let's see what happens. And it seems like right now the, that strategy seems to be working as they're getting a lot of A-list stars to join their streaming service. And another star that they seem to be getting for another 
Netflix action thriller called Trigger Warning is the one and only Jessica Alba, who will be starring in this action thriller in which Netflix, again, looking for A-list stars, in which Jessica Alba has teetered off a little bit. She's been doing more philanthropic, more business corporation stuff than she has movies recently. She's appeared in a few things here and there. She's on the Spectrum, now Fox show, LA's Finest with Gabrielle Union. But she hasn't done a lot of stuff than she used to back in the day. But it seems like she wants to get involved with this, and it seems because of the success of Extraction, Netflix wants to get into business with Jessica Alba and see what they can do with her. And it's going to be directed by Molia Suari, who is going to be directing the film. And it's going to be about a traumatized veteran who inherits her grandfather's bar and is faced with a moral dilemma about discovering the truth about his untimely death. And they're hoping that this is another franchise start for them, exactly kind of like what they were hoping Extraction would be, which now has a greenlit project that Joe Russo is writing a script for. So they see the success with that film, and if you can get somebody like Jessica Alba, who does have, again, some star appeal, and she can kick butt, which it seems like she can do if you've seen LA's Finest and a few other things she's been doing, that she definitely still has that edge to her, and I'm excited to see what she does with this film, and if they do the same exact thing with, with what Extraction was, if you have that kind of director, then I think you'll be on your way, and so I'm excited to see what they do with this film called Trigger Warning with Jessica Alba. Moving on now to a quick tenant update that I, I want to talk about real quick. And this is something that has been on a lot of people's minds for many, many months, weeks, days. And even up till last week, we thought we were going to get some kind of announcement that Warner Brothers was going to move tenant or keep tenant's date sometime last week. Now, by the time I upload this podcast, then that news could be announced, and then I'll talk about it on tomorrow on my podcast. But for right now, people are wondering, well, what's going to happen with Tenet? And according to Deadline, they have the inside scoop or a little inside scoop on what could actually be happening with Tenet. So to give you the, 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 the facts and to give you the bullet points of what the article talks about. So according to the sources over at Deadline, Warner Brothers needs at least 80% of the world's theaters to open, including New York. LA and San Francisco, which, according to these reports, represents 25% of a picture's opening weekend in order to keep Tenet on its original date. They also talk about that if such signs don't appear positive in the next three weeks or sooner, Tenet will move. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it also says that Warner Brothers is assessing the situation daily, literally every single day with medical experts and watching exhibition reopenings closely. So movie theaters that are opening right now, Warner Brothers is looking at, at that to see what what might happen in the next few weeks. They also talk about how Warner Brothers and Christopher Nolan, they know that they have a huge responsibility to get the industry back on track, but they're not going to lose any kind of skin with Tenet. That if they don't think it's worth it, they're not going to do anything with it, and they're not going to expose the public if it doesn't seem like it's going to work out for them, even if the storyline matches up really well for them. And they say also, if Tenet moves, the rest of the summer slate will move as well. Wonder Woman 84, Mulan, etc. And also, if Tenet moves to October 14th, or not October, August 14th, then Wonder Woman 1984 will move to December most likely. And if that is the case most likely, 
Dune will most likely be moved from December to 2020 sometime during that year, as Warner Brothers is not going to want anything to compete with A, Dune, which is a big risk for them right now, even with the brilliant mind and cast and production of Dune with Denis Villeneuve. It's a big risk, especially after what happened with Blade Runner 2049. So you, you would rather the surefire bet of Wonder Woman 1984 than you would with Dune and hold off until everything is back up and running and you can get a full marketing campaign and put it out the right way so it can be as successful as it can be. And then they also go into the marketing itself for Tenet. And they talk about how there's no live sports, so you can't really do any ads. You can't do a lot of marketing values on radio because people are going out less and less if they're not if they're not essential workers because of COVID-19. And then also, the only thing you can maybe do is television, maybe some television ads because people are at home, so you can potentially do television ads if you wanted to. Last night, for example, during The Last Dance, Netflix revealed a prom the first promotional material for The Five Bloods. It was a 30-second tease of the trailer that we got this morning. Or they could also do what Scoob did, which is from Warner Brothers. They could do a marketing campaign online. Scoob did a, a TikTok challenge in which garnered a, a lot, a lot of views and a lot of hits. And so they can maybe do a marketing campaign, put everything on blast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you can think of. Warner Brothers could do that to minimize the, the the money they put out in terms of ad revenue and marketing do dollars to this. So there's a lot going into this article, which is very insightful. I highly recommend checking it out. But also that the weight of this is on Warner Brothers. They feel it. They know it. And Christopher Nolan knows it. And, and everybody knows that. This this is like the, the weight of the world, if, especially in the movie theater industry. If one movie moves, then it just is going to cause a ripple effect because Mulan moved and, and CEO Bob Chapek has said for Disney that they feel like that is a good spot for them right now. But I highly doubt that if Tenant moves, they will keep their ground. They might. They might say, you know what? Let's see what happens. Let's see what goes on. Let's see how it plays out. But there's another thing you have to think about as well. It's the fact that in, in the article, it's the first thing I said. Warner Brothers needs at least 80% of the world's theaters to open. 80% of the world's theaters, including New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Two, not even two, three locations that are nowhere near opening theaters or any kind of cultural events in the future. LA County apparently is shut down for another three months. New York, Broadway at least, isn't, is shut down for until... September, but most likely not until 2021. So if theaters are shut down, Broadway theaters, movie theaters probably aren't going to open back up again until at least the fall or even the winter time in New York, at least. And, and world internationally, theaters are starting to open up and productions are opening up in Italy. They're opening up in, in Korea. Korean theaters are opening up. There's a lot of stuff. Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy is playing in Korean theaters over the next few weeks in June. So international theaters are starting to ramp back up again, but are they going to be at 80%? Is the World Series going to be at 80%, even including the major markets here in the United States, to put Tenet out, to put Mulan out, to put Wonder Woman 84 out during the summertime? And all the articles that, that I've read and I've been telling you and, and other people I've been reading over the last few weeks, months, is perfect scenario. Scenario one, this is deadline one right now of what they're trying to do, but I, I don't see it happening 
Theaters are opening. There's over 200 theaters that are opening up right now, which is great. If they feel like they can open up and they feel like they are keeping measures on par and that they're not endangering anybody and it seems like there hasn't been, knock on what I'm knocking on my on the table that I'm recording on right now, knock on that, everything stays the way it is. Everything's fine. Everything, people are able to actually stay and, and actually work and, and actually feel safe. And guys, I can go on and on about this for a long, long time. So I'm just going to leave it down here right now. What do you think about this? I might have two polls go on today, actually. One about The Last Dance and another one about Tenet. Do you think Tenet will open on July 17th? Yes or no? Let me know in your poll what you think. And in that poll, let me know what you think down below in the comment section on what you think about the thoughts of Tenet releasing by that deadline and about Warner Brothers and the capacity needs to have 80% or more of the theaters. Now, finishing up here on the Sam Bissell podcast, I know a long episode, guys, but there was so much to get into, and, and I'm going to go over an hour on this and probably a little bit more, but a lot of stuff to get into. And so award season I want to talk about real quick, and it is the Academy Awards, but everything going on with the coronavirus, they've decided to revamp their documentary category after kind of changing up the rules a little bit for award season eligibility, they specifically focused on the documentary guidelines and they updated uh, updated it saying, until further notice and for the 93rd Academy Awards only, doc features can qualify for Oscar consideration even if they don't complete both a seven-day theatrical release in Los Angeles County and a seven-day theatrical release in the city of New York during the eligibility period. When theaters reopen, the Academy will, for the time being, no longer require a week-long release in L.A., county, and New York City, but will rather require a week-long release in just one of five different cities, L.A., New York, the Bay Area, Chicago, and Atlanta. Docs that launch through commercial streaming VOD service or other broadcasts without having a festival showing or theatrical qualifying run can still be eligible if the film had a previously planned theatrical release and if the doc is then made available on the Academy streaming service within 60 days of its streaming slash VOD or broadcast. If a doc was merely announced or programmed as a selection by more than one qualifying film festival, it is good to go. And now a lot of people want to be thinking, well, the last dance for the Oscars, first of all, that's not going to happen because it didn't qualify for a film festival, whereas when OJ Made in America qualified for a film festival, it was one of the few one of the few to actually win the Academy Award and get away with it, really. And ever since then, the Academy has been very kind of keeping a bird's eye on, on where each and every single one of the, the nominees are, really. But to me, this is really no surprise whatsoever. Um, I'm, I'm happy for documentaries in the sense that you don't need to win an award, or at least you don't need to qualify in the sense that of, of a film festival, because what if you have a broader appeal? And I think that part of it is really interesting. And also the fact that, again, it keeps in the line that you don't need to have a full-on theatrical release. You can just come on VOD for this specific time period because of everything going on with the coronavirus. So it makes perfect, perfect sense for why they would want to do that. And it follows right in line with what, with what they're doing with the Golden Globes and the other, and with the Academy Awards as well with their changes. And then also to add on to award season, the Screen Actors Guild was sent an email to all their members saying, we are still revisiting our film release criteria, but we'll be following the Academy's rule change to allow titles with a planned theatrical release to be eligible if streamed or released on VOD first. 
Full language will be announced in June along with the rest of our rules. So again, it seems like award season is going to be this exact thing where because of the coronavirus and if you have a film that was set to be released in this kind of window and if you were set to have a theatrical release, it's okay to come out on VOD streaming in any kind of way. You can go on Netflix. You can go on VOD. You can go on Disney+. Plus and still qualify if you think you are Academy Award-worthy material or award season material, even if you don't even make it to the Academy Awards, as as happened over time. But it makes sense. I'm sure we'll see more rule changes for the Academy, for the Golden Globes, and I think this is something they say that until further notice and only for this award season, we'll see if that continues to be the same. Hopefully it's just for this award season. I don't think it'll change during this award season, I think it'll it'll stay the same. And next year, they'll hope that everything goes back to some kind of normal, that they don't have to actually do this for the next season and go back to at least some kind of form. Which I think digital is it, it's leaning towards the future that that the academy didn't want to hope for. But I think they're going to want to make sure that they they steer away from that the next time they they come up with this. Moving on now to some updates on a few films. That will be coming out in the next few years, really. And the first one comes from us to the people over at Collider, in which Jerry Bruckheimer offered up his update on the Pirates of the Caribbean 6. This is a film that has been in the works since the fifth film came out a few years ago. And he spoke to Collider's very own Steve Frosty Weintraub, and he talked about the plans going forward. And this is what he said. We're working on a draft right now. And hopefully we'll get it shortly. And give it to Disney. Hopefully they'll like it. We don't know. We've been working on it for a little bit. And one of the biggest questions going forth with Pirates of the Caribbean has been Johnny Depp. And because of everything that has really happened to him and the backlash against him. And really kind of the... The, the fall of Johnny Depp, the star, really. He was such a big, big commodity and, and one of the biggest superstars in pop culture in Hollywood at the time where you put out any film with him and it will make money. And that's not, that's not the case anymore, not really just with him, but with a lot of people. There's only, again, a, a few that can really keep that title. The two that really come to mind for me is Tom Cruise and really Dwayne The Rock Johnson at this point is one that can really put his name on there and people will come to film because of him. But with Johnny Depp's involvement with Jerry Bruckheimer, he goes on to say, the one we're developing right now, we're not sure quite what Johnny's role is going to be. So we're going to have to see. And now there have been some rumors, although not, there's been an insider saying that, that Karen Gillan might be the new face of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, but I haven't found any other trades that have backed that source up. So until I hear from multiple sources about that, I'm not confirming that whatsoever, but there is a rumor out there that Karen Gillan could be the new face of Pirates of the Caribbean. But whether it is her or somebody else, it seems like they're going in a new direction with Pirates, which honestly, I think it's for the best. And, and they, it's even put in this Collider article that they couldn't even put Johnny Depp on the last Pirates tour, press tour, because they fear that if people even saw Johnny Depp on a press tour and they were reminded of him, it would have brought up everything that's happening with him with his marital problems and between him and between the, the girl, the actress who was who was in Aquaman, her name is is escaping me at the moment right now. I'll find it. But when it comes to Johnny Depp, it, it's not a great situation. And even Fantastic Beasts and, and Where to Find Them face backlash when 
They put Johnny Depp in and J.K. Rowling, David Yates, they had to come out in support of Johnny Depp. And it seems like he is going to be the face of this franchise or one of the faces of the franchise going forth as of right now. But we'll see what happens. But I think right now, or Amber Heard is the name of between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That was his his now ex-wife. But they're really in a in a dispute that has been going on for many many years at this point. And it's it's her both of them really specifically really is really hurt Johnny Depp. And who knows? I mean, again, Johnny Depp got an Academy Award nomination for playing this role. He's the reason Pirates is so big is because of Johnny Depp. Without Johnny Depp this franchise wouldn't be the billion-dollar franchise that it is today. So I think they're really working around what are they going to do with this? Can they really go off the namesake of the franchise? Because worldwide, the Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tales, did very well in which it made it a success, but not the big success that the last few films were, specifically becoming a billion-dollar hit. It was half a billion dollars that it made or so. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. The Craig Marzin, who is a writer of Chernobyl, and he is producing an, an HBO series of The Last of Us, along with Ted Elliott, who was one of the original pirate writers. They're the ones penning a draft of the script right now. You have Jeremy Bruckheimer coming back for in a producing capacity. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. I, I think it's good that the Pirates is getting a little rest right now. I think it, it also suffered from franchise fatigue. I think you, you get fresh faces involved with it. Maybe you become a hit once again. So, We'll see what happens, but at least there is some kind of movement on an, an, a new edition of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Moving on now to some news from Chris Lord and or Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and their next film that has is coming from MGM, and it is going to be an astronaut film starring Ryan Gosling, and it is going to be based on a novel from Andy Weir who was the writer of the hit novel and the hit film from 2015 with Matt Damon, which was directed by Ridley Scott and was a multi-Academy Award-nominated film, was The Martian. And it is the book and the plot is described as a solitary, a, a solitary tale of an astronaut on a space trip who is tasked with saving the planet. And it's not even, it's not even coming out this year. It's going to come out next year, and it'll be published by Random House, and Amy Pascal is, is set to produce alongside MGM, and she was really one of the big reasons that she was able to get Phil Lord and Chris Miller over because the duo, they had such a great relationship. They worked on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse together, which won the Academy Award in, for 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. She helped the duo get the hands on their script. And even for Ryan Gosling, when he, he didn't even finish reading the script, and he lobbied for the executives over at MGM to help get Lord and Miller over because he thought it was the perfect project for them. And the reason that it, 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 it was it was tough at first, at least, to get these two and had, there had to be a deal was because in sports terms, they had to trade over Lord and Miller for a little bit, basically. They, they had to lease them out because they struck a deal with Universal, which is where Amy Pascal used to be, and or she, she's at Universal now, and... She was able to help kind of work around this with them. And Universal basically had to lend them over because they signed a first-look deal with Lord and Miller to produce television shows and, and a whole plethora of other projects that, that they can come out with. So th there was a lot behind the scenes working on this, but I'm excited to see what Lord and Miller do with this. Uh, from a statement from Amy Pascal, she says, I couldn't be more excited to be working with this dream team of filmmakers, Mike, Chris, Phil, Ryan, Andy, and Adita. 
all of the best of the best in their fields. I can't wait to get going on this amazing project with them. And then a statement from MGM president Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abney, who is the film group president. They went on to say in a statement, all of us at MGM are, are incredibly excited about this literal dream team coming together around Andy's astounding novel with their masterful ability to balance drama, action, and humor. Phil and Chris are the perfect filmmakers to take on this unique marital material, excuse me, and we are thrilled to have them partner with Ryan and Ken. And I have to agree. I think seeing what Ridley Scott did with The Martian, was it was an interesting take on it, and it was it was a different film for Ridley Scott. And I think if, if it has that same kind of humor and it, it's – it's a drama, but it has some uplifting humor to it. Then I think this is a great film for Laura and Miller to take on because they're great in rifting and, and and having great comedic moments. But at the same time, their films, comedies like the Jump Street franchise, to the Lego Movie, even Spider Man to Spider Verse, which they didn't produce but or they didn't direct, but they had their hands all over it. You could tell it was a Laura and Miller project. They have great comedy, but it's infused with, with great drama and heart and emotion and characters that I think Lord and Miller would be the perfect great duo for this. And to work with a great actor like Ryan Gosling, who picks his projects very meticulously because he's a great actor and he and he's earned that right to do that. If he wants Lord and Miller, then I'm sure they're going to do great stuff together. And this keeps the wave going of MGM acquisitions during this COVID-19 pandemic that we're living in as productions have been shut down, but deals have kept on going and MGM has been at the top of it. From the very beginning, they landed the rights to an untitled Thai cave movie coming out with Ron Howard directing. They have the, speaking of Ridley Scott, his new film Gucci with Lady Gaga is coming out. And last week as well, they picked up George Miller's new film, 3,000 Years of Longing with Idris Elba and Tindla Swinton, which they landed the North American rights to that. It'll be written by Doug Mitchell, and it's starting production in March, and it'll be shooting in Australia, London, and Istanbul. So this new new structure in place at MGM has really been paying off, it seems like, in terms of getting high-profile acquisitions with A-level talent, both in front and behind of the camera, that hopefully this turns into Academy Award material, but also it turns into box office material for them, that it can get people to go to the movies and say, oh, I want to see this new film with Lady Gaga with Ridley Scott or this new one with Ryan Gosling with Lord and Miller. They're coming out with interesting projects that I think is really kind of joint production that, that you would really want to see from studio. So I'm excited about it. I'm interested in it. And I think a lot of these films, specifically this new one with Lord and Miller with Ryan Gosling and this one with George Miller, uh, is going to be really, really cool to see and to... And to see on the big screen now wrapping up here on the sam Bissell podcast i know guys a long episode today but again so much to get to I'm, I'm almost done with it just a few more things to talk about here a lot of news and i'm going to end it one of the things i'm going to end on is in a galaxy far far away and that is with the signing of another cast member to the mandalorian which it seems like every friday there's just new material coming out with the mandalorian last week it was Mara Morrison coming out, playing Boba Fett, and now this week we get from The Hollywood Reporter exclusively that Timothy Oliphant, who was in Justified and Santa Clarita Diet and Deadwood, will be coming on to play an unknown role in the second season of The Mandalorian. It's not known if he'll be playing an original or returning character, but if it's Timothy Oliphant, it makes perfect sense to have him in this. He's somebody who is a gunslinger. He's been in westerns and 
what is really the main draw of the Mandalorian or one of the main inspirations was the old style westerns. The Mandalorian is a lone gunslinger. He's moving from place to place, hopping from planet to planet. And so for Timothy Olyphant to be a part of this and play, I'm sure, another maybe another bounty hunter or a pivotal character that'll be featured in season two and in future seasons as well, I think is really exciting. And it doesn't hurt to add new talent. So we'll see if this Friday brings any more Mandalorian news that I'll either talk about Friday or Monday again. So it seems like right now Mandalorian is a big, big topic on a lot of people's minds with when even though they're done shooting right now, they're in post-production, it's given that it's coming out in March. But the fact that they're still casting in terms of they probably already have these people locked down, but we're finding out about it now, I think is really cool and really interesting. And we'll see if there's any more news coming out of The Mandalorian within the next week or so. And then even in the next few days, we'll find out about it more. Now, going on to some more on a sad note, uh, unfortunately, there were some untimely deaths that came about on Saturday to two very prominent figures in the world of, of entertainment, really. The first one is Fred Willard, who was a comedian who starred in films that I knew, such as Anchorman, and he was on the Ed Sullivan Show, and, and, and a whole bunch of other, other comedic gigs from television to movies that you really remember him from. And I remember seeing him in, in, in projects that were funny, and he was such a standout character in them. And Anchorman, to me, was one where he played the head of the, the director of the newscast, where Ron Burgundy was, and... I really loved him, and it was very sad to hear about him pass away. And even more heartbreaking also is the passing of Lynn Shelton, who died of a rare blood disease at the age of 54. She was an independent filmmaker who directed indies and television. She directed Hump Day, which premiered at festivals. She was also a director of major, major shows such as Mad Men, New Girl, The Mindy Project, Fresh Off the Boat, Shameless, Glow, the morning show, and just recently that came out a few weeks ago, Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon. And so she's really worked with a lot of A-list talent in her life, and it's just sad to see such a prominent figure in filmmaking who inspired so many people kind of just pass away like that so tragically, so suddenly. And, and again, like I've said, with a lot of people have tragically passed away over the last few weeks, with everything we're dealing with now, even if it isn't a COVID-related death reason, it still just hurts even more in the fact that in a time that we're living where there's so much death, even just someone that dies of natural causes or someone that dies of a rare blood disease, it's it's hard. And my heart goes out to the Willard and to the Shelton family. I know Mark Maron, who was a part of GLOW, was her partner. And so it's um, I can't even imagine what he's going through. So... For, all, for everyone who is associated with these two iconic figures, my heart goes out to you along with the San Vista Podcast and everyone associated with the Ambiguous Network. Our heart goes out to the, the families of Fred Willard and Lynn Shelton. Again, Fred Willard, gone too soon, and Lynn Shelton, age 54, gone too soon. And to wrap up the San Vista Podcast show today, guys, on a lighter note to end it out, some Mad Max Fury Road news that made its way on Friday and throughout the weekend. This past Friday was the fifth anniversary of one of the greatest action films of all time, and people consider one of the great films of all time, a modern action masterpiece from George Miller with Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, and Nicholas Holt. It was a film that captivated audiences and went on to be nominated for 10 Academy Awards and win about six of those, especially in Below the Line production. And 
this weekend or this past week, a New York Times came out with a whole spread, excuse me, on Mad Max Fury Road. And one of the things they, 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 they touched on was George Miller talking about a Furiosa spinoff. And this has been something that has been in the works since the Fury Road came out in 2015. And, and George Miller talks about in this New York Times article that he had backgrounds for all these characters, such as Immortan Joe, the, the, the pregnant women, Every, every little character George Miller and his writers had full-on backgrounds on, and they didn't really address a lot of them in Fury Road because it was just quick action pace nonstop, and you learned about the characters here and there. But one of them they said that they fully fleshed out and they wanted to do a movie on was Charlize Theron's Furiosa, who really, even though it's titled Mad Max Fury Road, Furiosa is really the main star of that, of that movie. Mad Max is really a, a side character in it. Tom Hardy is really the supporting role, and even though it makes it seem like it's vice versa, it's really Charlize's Charlize movie, and it seems like George Miller, that other after this next movie that he's going to be doing with Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton in The 3,000 Years of Longing, it seems like his next film is going to be this Furiosa spinoff. That's going to be his next dive into the Mad Max world, and it seems like it's going to be without Charlize Theron. And this has been reported for a while. There were rumors that Anya, so Anya Taylor-Joy was going to be playing a younger Furiosa. That's not confirmed by George Miller, but he says he is going a, the younger route. He talked about how he thought they could do de-aging on Charlize, but it didn't really work out. And he talked about the Irishman and how it's it still looked a little uncanny watching the Irishman. And so he wants to go more of the natural route instead of just trying to force it in there. And then they talk about the the New York Times article also goes into the oral history about Mad Max and, and how this film was delayed from the late 90s into the early 2000s and then it wasn't made until the the early 2010s and then they, they did production in 2011, 2012 and there, there was production issues, there was cast issues. Of course, uh, a one thing that is well documented and they explored here is the the rift, the friction between Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. They were not, there was problems between the two of them on set. There was a lot of fighting between the two of them, and they talk about it in this and how they would have definitely gone about it a different way in which Charlize talks about how she didn't see at the time, but the amount of pressure that Tom Hardy was under to live up to the legacy of Mad Max, which was made famous from by Mel Gibson in the 70s and 80s. And then Charlize kind of, of doing her own thing. And then I think really what kind of caused that friction was the distrust they had in George Miller. And they talk about, they loved working with him. He was a great guy, but during the production, they didn't know what kind of movie they were making until they saw it at the premieres. They just kind of had the little tidbits of information that they had from George Miller whenever he would give some character stuff, but they didn't really know the movie they were making. They were just doing action sequence after action sequence after action sequence and even stuntmen were saying usually we'll come in and we'll do a stunt scene every now and then this was from the from dusk till dawn it was a action it was action 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 stunt stunt stunts all the way around and so for them they just didn't really trust the vision that George Miller had until they saw it and they say now looking back they would do it again with him and and they loved him but just the vision he kept it to himself but he knew the movie he made, but nobody else knew the movie that he was envisioning. And they also talk about working on that on that rig that Tom Hardy and, and Furiosa and Mad Max are on with 
the brides, the the, the brides, and how they they were in that for hours and hours and hours. And the locations that they were shooting in, it might have seemed like they were shooting in hot conditions, but it was cold, and they were in shorts and sleeves. And, and for the and for the for the women, especially the brides, they had crop tops on where their bellies were showing and and they didn't it was sleeveless so they were freezing and the same thing with tom hardy and charlize they had to seem like they were shooting in 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 the dead of summer when it was really cold there and the conditions weren't right and people were getting sick and it just wasn't really great conditions and then they talk about how the studio intervened and and the crew couldn't shoot the opening or the ending but then kevin sujahara came in and said you have a set amount of time to shoot the opening and the ending, and they got what they needed. And in the end, this crazy production turned out to be a phenomenal movie. It was one of my, it's maybe my second favorite film of the year, next to Creed. Creed's my number one film of the year, next to it is Mad Max Fury Road. And so I think for this film, what it was able to accomplish, and reading this, I highly recommend this New York Times article. It just, it gives you a, a real appreciation for this movie and really what the hell they went through during the making of this film, both George Miller, who his wife says that she was there during production, that they were concerned for him, that it sounded like this was Apocalypse Now 2.0, that that George Miller was thinning and and he just wasn't right. And with Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola almost killed himself making that movie. And it seems like George Miller, even though he wasn't contemplating suicide, it seems like at least from what he was saying, but George Miller was 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 basically killing himself over the making of this film and just, just just to see. And I think for anyone that's going into film and looking to do productions, this is a valued lesson of what it takes to make greatness. And making great films isn't sunshine and, and rainbows all the time. And and tying in really the, la- the, the beginning of this podcast to the ending of it with The Last Dance, and when Jordan talks about the mental capacity of he might have been an a-hole and people might have seen him as a dictator, but... What he did worked, and he won championships, and what George Miller did, and I'm not saying he had that same mentality, but the mentality George Miller had, whatever he did, it worked, because this is considered a masterpiece, a great film, an action masterpiece that nobody else could have pulled off and people want to see more of. And so five years later, it's crazy to think this was five years ago in May when when there was so much behind-the-scenes noise about this film that it was able to get made is astonishing, and... I don't know how he's going to pull off another film, whether it's another Mad Max film down the line or this Furiosa film, but I, 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 I'm I going to watch Mad Max again after reading these articles, and I'll probably have a throwback review about it soon, but just the way that the colors were shot, and he even said that he wanted to make it more of a vibrant, a post-apocalyptic world than the more drought and dreary ones that some of the picture show of, the, of this film and of other post-apocalyptic films that came out before then, so... This film, I think, is really interesting, and, and and it's just mind-blowing when you hear the news that comes out of this movie. Really, what the hell the cast and crew went through. So I tip my cap off to them for what they, what they were able to do with this film. And with that, guys, that is the end of this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Again, an hour and 30. If you guys are stuck on through the end of this podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. I know it was a long one. There was so much to get through, but again, thank you for sticking with me and hearing all the amazing things that are going on in the world of Hollywood. I'll have a lot more to talk about tomorrow and in the week to come, but if you want to check out this episode along with my previous episodes, be sure to check out that content on SoundCloud, 
You can check me out on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and a whole lot more. And also, you can check out the Ambiguous Network, which they have other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. And also, check out our brand new show that is on the, the Ambiguous Network, The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. You can check them out on the website, ambiguousproduction.com, also on Facebook and Twitter, at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, make sure to follow me on social media after you're done following the Ambiguous Network on all their social media accounts. You can follow me on Twitter at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Basel. Thank you guys again so much. And until next time, keep on screening.